Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Creaky Chair Film Podcasts, the show where we discuss all things film, old favourites and new releases, from Busby Berkeley musicals to Mexican avant-garde acid westerns, from Top Hat to El Topo. With me this week, as ever, Sam Oliver and Bill King. Hello. Hello. I, I love that you're making these intros harder for yourself each week. It's, it's a real commitment to a bit, Michael. I really appreciate it. Nice. Yeah, eventually, eventually, it's just going to be just one long intro and we'll yeah. just say hello. And then it's over, which I'm fine with. Tune in next week to see what Michael's really intense intro is. And that'll probably be our most popular episodes, I reckon. Yes, I mean, I should explain. So obviously that won't make the cut, but that took about three or four goes for me just to say Mexican avant-garde acid western. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've been here for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is uh, part one of our special uh, special monthly episode. Uh, so over the course of the next two weeks, we are going to be engaging on a, a, a very painful and arduous task of identifying our favourite films of uh, the 2010s. So uh, we will intermittently uh, in these special episodes return to, uh, we'll kind of go backwards in time, do our favourite films from the 90s, from the 80s, etc, uh, etc. Et but we thought we'd start with best films, or our favourite films rather, of uh, the 2010s. We're each going to pick four films each to pick, spread over uh, spread over two episodes. We have tried to provide a, a broad array of, of, of films. They're not necessarily the best, but they're the ones that stood out for us and, and made the, be- the biggest sort of Im- impact and impression on us. Before we get going on, on our first film that we're going to discuss, let's just talk about how was, how was your cinema-going experience uh, over the course of the previous decade? Is there one kind of particularly memorable cinema-going experience with a film that, that comes to mind? I have a... I think i mean the only person that could doubt me on this is myself so if i doubt myself then that's my own problem but i'm pretty sure that the 2010s was the very first time i saw like one of those proper intense massive imax movies i think i've seen a few kind of like casual imax movies that like you know like bradford film museum's got like you can do those like titanic ones and it was like here's loads of bugs in 3d kind of thing but i think the first proper kind of like all-encompassing, I'm being yelled at by the t- by the screen, IMAX experience was in the 2010s. That really sticks out as a kind of all-encompassing cinema experience, which I wish I could remember what film it was, but... It completely reminded me, because we were thinking, when we've been talking about this in the preparation for, and thinking of all these films that we keep forgetting, and then, oh God, yeah, that's that was in the 2010s. But you've just reminded me, yeah, that, that there was the whole 3D thing that was like this massive game-changing development that has now completely proved itself to be a fad yeah yeah that was bullshit wasn't it james cameron <laughs> yeah it was felt like everyone was like do you know what avatar is going to pave the way for the new wave of 3d films that everyone was just like actually can't be asked yeah just paved the way for piranha 3 double d so again well done james cameron <laughs> a nice little circular thing in his uh in his career though isn't it because he did piranha 2 as his first film so now that was that was what he gave to cinema in the end as his legacy. It's almost like it's almost like he planned it that way. Like deep down, James Cameron's been playing well. Deep down in the Atlantic, where he's been submerged, he's been playing some four D chess with us about Piranha. Four double D chess. Bill, any memorable uh, cinema experiences for you over the last decade? Yeah, I was thinking about this. I, I think yeah, one of them was seeing Inception. I found that just incredible. Um, just the surround sound, Zimmer's bounds going on, and uh, and yeah, I found that amazing. But one of the my my strongest one isn't actually a cinema experience. Um, so I failed at the question. But um, I was on a plane, which well, how best to describe it? So a plane. It was a sort of hollowed out giant metal bird powered by uh, sorcery. 
uh, which would fly us across oceans by carrying us in its stomach. Anyway, and this was this was the film you saw. It was about this metal bird in the sky. No, no, I was in I was in this this aeroplane, um, and you were allowed to watch films in them. It was an incredible piece of technology, wow. but Gosh. long long since uh, long since lost to us. Um, but anyway, I watched um, her, which is a very very well. I found it a very very emotional film, and I started beefing at the end. And, um, you, you, you know, we were watching on a plane and um, you, you take your headphones off and you're a bit disorientated. And, and I looked over and um, this guy who was sat across um, the aisle from me and he'd obviously just finished watching it as well and also had tears in his eyes. And we kind of just looked at each other wow. and there was this moment of just like, Whew, that was that was bloody tough, wasn't it, mate? Didn't speak to each other because it was, it was kind of weird. But, um, yeah, it was this nice little shared moment of, well, we're both devastated by this film. Um, so, yeah, that was a that was a nice shared Aww. shared sort of cinema going experience. I just had a lovely vision there of like your hands extending across yes. the aisle. And We've, well, we're, we're very yeah, we're very Aww. happy together still to this day. No AI lover for you. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's also thanks for reminding me, Bill, that her was one of the films that I'm really sad to not be able to talk about because this, as Michael mentioned, we've been ruining our own minds and bodies trying to think of our four favorite films and. I think it's genuinely been one of the hardest tasks I've ever had to face, narrowing down an entire decade's worth of film into four selections. Well, I mean, as we've been saying, though, just imagine how difficult it's going to be when we get to the 70s or the 60s. Just think about that. And um, so, oh, fuck that. And the 1910s, they're going to be hard. Very hard. <laughs> You're going to love the silent era. It's going to absolutely slay you. Bloody, I'm going to have a... Oh, I'm going to be so tough, man. <laughs> Whereas me and Bill are going to be like, can we have one of yours? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Was that one where the space rocket went in his eye? Was that was that the tens? <laughs> Did they make an arrival at the station part two? <laughs> I'll have that. Is that in three D? So cinema cinema experience for me. So so this has come back into my mind since since we've been having this this lovely uh, lovely June weather. Uh, but I remember back in so twenty thirteen, I I. I read a, a glowing review of this film in The Guardian called Norte, The End of History, which was like a Filipino drama, uh, four hours long. And I decided after work on a whim to say, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go and see this. Why not go and go and watch a four hour film? And it was on it was in a summer day. It was so it was ridiculously hot. I think it was like the hottest day of the year so far. And I thought, well, the cinema is bound to have air conditioning, isn't it? So I go in, I went to the, the ICA, which is a, the, the ICA in central London, which was nearby my work. Very lovely little cinema. It's about a 50-seater. Uh, and, of course, their air conditioning was broken, for which they apologised. So there was me and, you know, I think it was at capacity, people sweltering, sweating in our seats for a full four hours, which was odd because it was it's a Filipino film and obviously it's incredibly hot in the film. So it felt like this kind of new really weird sort of like 4d sensory experience that i was being subjected to yeah which was which was not good i mean i i don't really remember i remember it being very good i mean it's a you know meditation on crime and class structures and family units but it's not yeah i wouldn't wouldn't choose to do that again and so that's your favorite cinema going experience the last 10 years no that was a mem a memorable a memorable, a memorable okay, experience. okay just check yeah that was the brief <laughs> all right sorry you didn't choose i didn't to follow, follow it, it. <laughs> that <laughs> That also um, reminds me quite nicely of a, a, a memorable film experience in which I can remember the name of the film. When me and my girlfriend, now fiancé, were in London once, I was like, ooh, do you want to go to the BFI? They've done a re-release of this uh, 1927 film about Napoleon, and it's apparently it's been lost for ages and it's apparently really, really good. I think we should go and see it. Neglecting to mention to her that it was five and a half hours long <laughs> and done in four separate sittings. 
And I was like, you don't have to, you can say no. She's like, no, that sounds interesting. So proceeded to spend an entire day of our trip to London, sitting in the dark, watching a silent movie about Napoleon. I had a great time. And she, to this day, does attest that, you know, she did get something out of it, but all good relationships are built on lies, aren't they? <laughs> now she's your fiance. Maybe don't try that again. Otherwise, <laughs> the, the wedding might get cancelled. No, yeah, she's she's seen through my ruses. Always keen to ask, like, how long is that film? And if it's more than 90 minutes, like, serious serious questions need to be asked after that. So another memorable cinema experience that's just come into my mind as well was, uh, I think it must have been around the same time, same year, the Danny Boyle film, really forgettable. I don't remember anything about it. It was called Trance. Really quite mediocre film, I think. But oh yeah, that was forgettable. I went to see it at the at the Brixton cinema that I went to see films at quite a lot when I was living there. So the Brixton Ritzy. At the end of the film, kind of manager had to come in and say, um, uh, "Sorry, everyone, we're going to have to escort you out of the side door. You're going to have to go through the staff exit because the front, the square, the Brixton Square, uh, where the cinema is, has been besieged. And the reason for this was that Margaret Thatcher had died earlier in the day, and Brixton was a <laughs> carnival. Uh, there were people what? having a huge party. Scaled, they'd scaled the roof of the cinema and were uh, yeah having a, having a, a cracking good time in celebration. Uh, so that was stuck with me. Oh my god." That's incredible. Brixton life. <laughs> wow. I bet the manager on that day was like, do you know what? I was never trained for this specific experience, but I'm going to take all of my expertise of cinema management. I'm glad you had a nice tame on what was one of the darkest days in our nation's history. <laughs> yes. Important to have BBC balance. <laughs> right, let's get, let's get cracking. We are going to start with, Bill, your first film. Yes, my first film. And we're starting off in 2011. I went with Drive. And my little my little way of deciding which which films to go with were just films that just stuck with me, films that did something really different and gave like a visceral reaction. Um, and also films that sort of summed up the last 10 years for me. I think Drive's a massive part of that. It's massive. It's become part of a a culture it's a it's a very it's a very well-known film and i think most of you listeners probably have seen it but nicholas wenning reffin and ryan gosling and for me it redefined what an action film could be um or, or should be I've, i'm a massive action film fan and one of the main problems with action films is they're very very similar um i think out of all genres they are the most samey doesn't mean it's it's worse than any genre i just think it is can be very very uh, one note as it were whereas this did something very different and was still incredibly entertaining and great and worked as an action film i think that is um summed up by the two car chases there's only two car chases in it and they're incredibly original the first car chase isn't really a car chase it's it's ryan gosling doing some amazing driving around the city dodging cop radios and and parking up in oh, clever yeah. places yeah that, that opening scene um the second is mostly um the car in reverse as another car chases it up a highway and is incredibly short and ends with an epic stunt and i don't know i've never been in a car chase would love to be one day but i assume that's what most real car chases and real crimes actually go down like um and, and yeah i found that staggering that that, that could be done by a director who wasn't really an action director before this that aside parking the the action stuff parking that was a little pun for you there every frame sizzles with this 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 quiet threat um i, I think it it really builds and builds and builds and that is um that's sort of clearly defined by uh, ryan gosling's unknown driver who is this monosyllabic powerful um and deadly figure 
despite the fact that he doesn't talk much, he doesn't issue many threats apart from his finger of doom at one point, um, which is, I think, only rivaled by the great Harrison Ford. <laughs> but he's also quite lovable. Um, and he, it, it comes across as sort of like a Leon. Um, indeed, the film is almost a neon Leon. Um, and I wanted to just talk... Thank you. I was pre-prepared. But that's what I wanted to look. The look of the film is just so strange and it's done in this sort of 80s fashion and uh, these neon lights and the cityscape. And it is, it's just very strange. And just, you, you sometimes think like when they got the script and they put it together, how did all this come together and why does it work? And it shouldn't work. I, I just think at the pitching stage, it shouldn't work, but it feels so experimental. And, and the soundtrack for me is a massive part of that. The soundtrack's got some really odd choices on it and music I wouldn't necessarily be into but I've since obviously love it and um, and it's introduced me to new music which I think is fantastic for a film and again it just shouldn't fit these these strange like faux 80s tracks that are put on and, and trance tracks are just strange but it but it really works um the cast is brilliant um so I, I forgot um, Oscar Isaac's in it as the, uh, the the boyfriend that gets into all the trouble. Obviously, Carrie Mulligan's brilliant. Um, you've got Brian Cranston playing against type. And, you know, this is in the midst of Breaking Bad when he was playing one of the most threatening characters ever conceived. And in, in this, he's just this lovely, really unlucky bloke. And then this is genius casting. Albert Brooks as one of the most mm. reasonable villains ever. He's a villain that you feel like, he's it's, it's just, he's gutted the way things work out. He, he genuinely seems to regret the way things work out. He's, he says it, it's just, mm. we're in this situation just from damn bad luck and he's just, he's annoyed at, at Ron Perlman's in it. God damn, how did I forget Ron Perlman? But he's annoyed at, at, at the situation spiralling out of control as they do in a thriller and an action film. And I've never seen that in a film before. I think I think it's brilliant. But yeah, as I'll say, I, I think the way it's lit, the way it's shot, masterful, cast, fantastic. It's become this huge part of, of, uh, of, of cult films, I think, out there. It's had so many copycats. You can see its effect on other films that have come out since and on the action genre as well. I don't think you've got any John Wick films, for example, without without Drive coming along. And it's funny that it's affected films like John Wick, which are admittedly very well made and great stunts, but they're standard action films. And I think that's, I think that's really interesting, and I, I love that. And um, yeah, in the end, I think I'm just going to sum up by just say it's, it's just cool. It's ineffably cool. Mm. I also think like Drive is one of those films that is, like you said, these films come along every now and then where they're just like really cool and they kind of affect how like a lot of people view certain things, how people like dress and how they act and how filmmaking then is made from that point on. And there were so many people, so many actors that were trying to do like the Ryan Gosling thing after Drive. But then you go back to Drive and you think about it and you're like, nah, but like that is such a good template. And like, yes, it's almost a little bit kind of cliche now because of how good a template it is for all the things that tried to copy it afterwards. And also like that, a real hero, a real human being song on that soundtrack, one of those ones that like has been played to death over the years, but is still just an absolute banger of a film soundtrack. Like, oh. I'm just as an aside, I just I had a short-lived stint. Uh, it didn't wasn't very good at it, but uh, at uh, organising film events uh, somewhere in London. And one of the best ones that I did was a double bill, uh, double bill drive teamed with Jewel. Oh, which was really good. Worked really that's, well. That's a that's great, a pairing, great duo. And that was actually the first. So it was only a couple of years ago, and that was the first time I'd somehow missed Drive. I didn't see it when it came out, and that somehow it passed me by. But yeah, I remember being uh, thinking like this about time I watched this, and yeah, very impressed, very enjoyable. 
Just uh, just one more thing as well, sorry, I forgot to mention, is um, BBC Three did an experiment where they um, had different um, DJs choose the soundtrack for Drive. Oh, yeah, and you watched that. it with a new soundtrack. They got a bunch of Radio 1 DJs, quite, you know, quite good DJs in to put the soundtrack on. And it was amazing how much it made the film work. That's so funny. It was, it, it was, honestly, it was so cool seeing the effect. And I think, you know, the real work that goes into and must have gone into collating these tracks and choosing these tracks and uh, timing the moments. And um, yeah, it was, it was just really interesting how it, it dropped a star off the film for me. So that was, uh, that was an interesting. Experience. It's amazing. So I think like that's almost sings praises of like a really, really good soundtrack obviously kind of does need to have the dual job of standing out, but also blending in. Cause obviously there's certain tracks and certain moments in any soundtrack that you're like, there's the iconic moment or there's the moment where the action's taken a turn, but it also needs to do a really subtle job of just advancing the plot giving a little bit of atmosphere. And like you mentioned, that kind of like 80s, that faux 80s neon Leon I'm going to use vibe that it has is perfectly served by that soundtrack. All right. Okay. That's, that's drive. Uh, Sam, shoot. What's your, what's your first film? First film choice. Well, let's continue in 2011. So a lot of the films that I've chosen, sorry, let me correct all the films I've chosen. The thing that unites all of them is they're films that I only have only ever seen once. I saw in the cinema, I saw when they came out and they made such an impact on me that I'm still thinking about them now. And I still talk about them with such praise. They made such an effect on me that even though I haven't watched them again, I still think with such fondness on these films. And just to highlight this fact, I wanted to put myself back in the mind of where I was when I watched this film. So the first film I'm going to talk about is the 2011 British thriller slash horror slash hitman classic, Ben Wheatley's Kill List. For those of you that don't know, I am quite a regular diary keeper. So I had a quick look back through some of my old diaries to try and find entries from when I first watched these films to kind of try and remind myself of the effect they had on me. So here from the 3rd of September, 2011, is me after just watching Kill List. We went, I was in Dublin when I went to see Kill List. How cool is that? Another holiday ruined by a cinema trip. Yeah. It turns out every time I'm on holiday, I'm like, how can I really ruin this for everyone? And I was like, to my dad and my brother, I was like, guys, do you want to have an awful time? Come and join me. Anyway. Should we go to the Guinness factory? No, let's go and watch Kill List. Um, so 3rd of September, 2011. We went to the Irish Film Institute. I had a Guinness and we went to go and see Kill List, which was... Feckin' brilliant. Absolutely amazing. 10 out of 10. Engrossing, clever, vivid, scary, visceral, graphic, witty, and brilliant. Really shook me up. I loved it. The rest of the evening was spent with the film running around my brain, which, if I'm honest, is still true nearly 10 years later. I had a little look at the trailer again today just to kind of remind myself of some of the visuals. And even just watching the trailer, that film came rushing back to me. And that feeling I had, I remember watching Kill List and leaving the cinema into the bright lights of Dublin and just being shook to my very core. And I think that's one of the things that Kill List does so well, because it's a totally unique beast of a film. It starts off and it's a bit of a, you think it's going to be a standard British hitman film. So you follow these two hitmen, Jay, uh, played by Neil Maskell, and Gal, who's played by Michael Smiley, who are hit men for hire and they take on a, a seemingly easy assignment that they have to carry out where they kill three people and get a big payoff and um, throughout the film they're kind of talking about this botched job that they had in kiev and this is the job that they're going to do that's going to give them the big payoff and they can finally get rid of this life so 
you think, so far, so standard. Neil Maskell's doing his Cockney accent is really threatening. And Michael Smiley is a lovely counterpart with his lovely Northern Irish accent as a kind of foil. So you've got Neil Maskell, who you think he's the mad hitman. And here we have Michael Smiley going to be a bit more level-headed. But the film, so quickly, without really you noticing, swerves into this incredible, horrible thriller, horror, folk ex- like explosion of just thrills. It's an absolute white-knuckle thrill ride. And it screams towards a climax that, as I mentioned in my previous diary entry, will leave you literally reeling. The film is directed by Ben Wheatley and written by Ben and his long-standing writing partner, Amy Jump, who he's worked on with loads of other of his great films, Sightseers, A Field in England, High Rise, and Free Fire. One thing that I think is so great about Killis is that all the characters are so well-serviced by this great script. It takes these character archetypes that could so easily be very two-dimensional. You've got the alcoholic ex-soldier turned hitman. You've got the harried and put-upon wife, the mysterious client that hires them for a job, and the person that's from Northern Ireland, of course. And it takes these characters that could, in the hands of a lesser director and lesser writers, be really two-dimensional, but it crafts onto them these incredible stories and these incredible motivations and these incredible lines of dialogue that just keeps you going and takes this idea of a very, almost kind of, it takes a cliche idea and takes it in a thousand and one different directions. And it speaks volumes that I remember watching this film and being like, oh, Michael Smiley, he was tires and spaced. I love Michael Smiley. And almost instantly, you forget that link and you're just drawn into this intense character. It's set in Sheffield, which is where I currently live. So maybe some of those, I've got a little bit of a personal connection to it as well. But the scenes of its kind of grimy industry and like these horrible little backstreet, the scenes that it sets up add to this ominous threat there's this really incredible scene where neil maskell's character jay is in a hotel and he just sees across this barren wasteland this mysterious woman in white just waving to him slowly and he's just looking confused and, and strange up with this thing going on it's a scene that you totally wouldn't expect to see in a standard british thriller hitman kind of film but that's exactly what makes this film so great it zigs it zags it twists it turns and it's really really stressful like you're not gonna have a nice time and it's not a pleasant experience but I think that's what makes it so powerful it's just a real genuine thrill ride from start to finish I think at any point when I thought I knew what was going on I was so quickly taken aback by something else that was happening and I think Ben Wheatley so deftly directs this film as well there's these tiny moments of for example levity where they're all hanging around at the house, drinking some wine, having a bit of a laugh. But the way it's shot and the way the soundtrack happens and the way the characters are acting, you can just already sense that underlying dread. Even after 10 years, I can still sense that thrill and that tension and some incredible moments of violence. I know incredible might be the wrong word to use here, but there's one specific scene that if you've seen Kill List, I think you'll know what I'm talking about where you see the build-up to this intense moment of violence and you're waiting for the cut, you're waiting for the cut, you're waiting for the cut, and it never happens. And let me tell you, after drinking a couple of Guinnesses in Dublin, it's a horrible thing to have to experience. And finally, I just wanted to call out, there's a great scene where Neil Maskell's character, Jay, um, gives the best response I've ever seen to somebody, be an unwelcome guitar player, 
where Jay says to him, you're giving me indigestion. The guitar player replies, oh, sorry. Neil says, apology accepted. The guitar player replies saying, sometimes God's love can be hard to swallow. To which Jay replies, not as hard as a dinner plate, which is just a beautiful moment of threat to somebody playing a guitar when you don't fucking want them to play a guitar. It's 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 a sticker. And I just think it's it's one of the best British thrillers that's probably ever been made. Yeah, absolute monster of a film. Monster of a film. A, a, a film so good. I, it, it has incidental like t- um, chapter titles as it goes through. And uh, I won't spoil any of them now, but I can still remember watching it for the first time and the chapter titles scaring me or giving me a sense of dread. And, yeah. and here's another thing for a film staying with you. Again, no spoilers, but I can't listen to a round of applause now without thinking of that film. Uh, <laughs> It, it's ruined. I mean, it's ruined clapping for me. Um, so, um, so that's that's something. But, but yeah, it's it's just it's it's so good. It's so good. The way it has this this underlying mythology to it, um, and and but it's also these two just jobbing mm. um, blokes trying to come on with their, their their work, and they're getting deeper and deeper into this mm. mysterious goings on without it ever overplaying its hand on any one one uh, aspect of it. Um, it's a very hard film to talk about without, yeah. without any spoilers but uh, yeah and because I, I do i do worry because I, I don't think a lot of people have seen it n- nowhere near as many people as they as they should uh, i don't think and it is I, I think it's just a wonderful film and uh, you're totally right it is up there for me in british thrillers and, and british horrors because it does veer that way definitely i think you're totally right Bob. that it's one of those films that like you want to talk about it and you want to be as specific as possible but at the same time like if you've not seen it going in completely blind is the best, best way. way to experience 100%, 100%. it like and also, I think, I mean, spoilers for some of the other films we're going to talk about, but I think a lot of the films that we're talking about in these episodes is an example of directors at like the height of their powers. Yes. I think Nicholas Winding Refn has not been better than Drive and Ben Wheatley has made some cracking films that I really, really like and I'm very looking forward to seeing in the earth, Ben, if you're listening. <laughs> um, but I just think Kill List is a totally realised experience of a film. Same as Drive. It's like, here is what I want to do and they do it 110%. And I think a lot of the films that we're talking about do that. Totally, totally right that. Fantastic. Right. Well, that's a kill list. So I'm going to go ahead with my my first film choice now. So and uh, sticking with the year 2011. God, we're really making our way through this this decade, aren't we? <laughs> Chugging through the decade. Only another 9 hours to go. 9 hours, 9 years. <laughs> um, so I'm going to I'm going to talk about the film Melancholia, which is a sci-fi art house film from Lars von Trier. So you talk about film directors starting out making their, making a mark like the previous two directors. I mean, this is Lars von Trier is sort of well into his career by this point. But so this is a film essentially about the end of the world. It's an apocalypse film, but the apocalypse is used as an analogy for depression and existential crisis. So it's the second of. Von Trier's Depression Trilogy, so the, the first being Antichrist, the third being uh, Nymphomaniac, which, again, I mean, I, I think actually I prefer Nymphomaniac to Melancholia, but I think as a better film, Melancholia probably has the edge. So this, so the cast list, I'll just read you the cast list for this film. So uh, it stars Kirsten Dunst, Charlotte Gainsbourg, Kiefer Sutherland, Alexander Skarsgård, Charlotte Rampling, John Hurt, Stellan Skarsgård. I mean, that is a that is a top cast list. I um, mean, Kirsten Dunst, I mean, a really brave, bold choice, quite a, well, brave for her as well in terms of, of being a deviation from, from her sort of previous body of work. I mean, she's exemplary in it. 
and uh, she won Best Actress at the, at the Cannes, Cannes Film Festival. Uh, so this, so it has the feel and the weight of uh, a Wagner opera. So Wagner is a, a heavy influence on the film. It feels very much like a fairy tale. So the film sort of spar- starts with, I mean, and, you know, a big plot spoiler. So at the end of the world, so you know, there isn't this creeping dread in the sense that you don't know how it's how it's going to end. You know that it's not going to end well right from the off. And the film it focuses on on two sisters. So Justine, played by Kirsten Dunst, and uh, Claire, played by Charlotte Gainsbourg. And it's split into two parts. So the first part, there's this lavish wedding reception for for Justine, at which there are all kinds of strange and unusual encounters with or behaviour from the assembled guests, all of whom appear to be deeply flawed and psychologically troubled people. So, for example, Justine's brother-in-law is complaining to anyone who will listen about how expensive the wedding reception was. Her mother is really jaded and makes this speech declaring how much she hates marriage. Her boss is there, who's constantly pressuring her to create a tagline for this new promotional campaign that he's working on. You know, so there's this lavish wedding, there's all the trappings, but everyone is really quite odious. And in the middle of it all, Justine is gradually withdrawing, succumbing to melancholia. And all the while, there is this big, bright, shining star in the sky. Uh, and the second part focuses much more on Claire, Charlotte Gainsbourg's character, who who takes Justine into her home as she's now become depressed to the point of catatonic. Uh, and they gradually become aware that there is a rogue planet called Melancholia, which has entered the solar system and is now approaching the Earth. So it's been talked up by scientists as being a spectacular flyby. Uh, but Claire gradually gets more and more alarmed at the prospect that they might be fatally wrong. Essentially, it's a film inspired by Lars von Trier's own well-documented experiences with depression. And kind of you know, he sets about examining the, the human psyche during a, a disastrous event and the idea that people who are depressed tend to react to external catastrophe more stoically and calmly than people who are not depressed because they've already resigned themselves to the pointlessness of, of everyday life you know they've, they've already the kind of depression is not so, is not just inside your head it's kind of the depression is the entire world because it is a, it's universal it's affecting you universally so there's a lot to get in, get your teeth into thematically and philosophically with this film you know in terms of it being a meditation on the end of the world and how human psychology might respond to and comes to terms with that fact. I mean, you know, it's interesting. It's something that we all know deep down is an inescapable fact of life. You know, we will we will die, and the Earth and the whole solar system will one day die. We just don't expect those two events to co- coincide. So it's it continues to be a really interesting study piece. I think simply because you know the existential threats to human life and the planet increasingly seem to be quite potent in our anthrop- anthropocene era. Visually, the the film is the film is stunning. So every shot is perfectly poised and captured there's plenty of arresting and poetic imagery that that von Trier does so well is why I love his work so much he owes a huge debt to Andrei Tarkovsky the first wedding scenes are shot using sort of handheld cameras and the actors were left to improvise without any rehearsals so you do get this you get that combination of more realist technique and then the kind of really stylized imagistic elements so he was aiming for an aesthetic of really kind of arch German romanticism, which is where Wagner's influence comes into it. It pitches the tension really cleverly, I think. So throughout all the wedding scenes, you're kind of you're gripped by the sense that it's all going wrong. You know, something terrible is going to happen, and there's going to be some sort of final event, and then something terrible does happen with the with the wedding that brings that kind of you know brings it all to a close, and that's then juxtaposed really well with the then the dread of the second part when something really terrible is that something terrible is literally the end of the world. 
and the kind of the enclosed way in which von Trier treats that setting so it's just basically set on this country estate with the main characters in it as I said at the start it feels like a fairy tale there's next to no encroachment from the outside from the outside world it's it's really self-contained so I mean just to just a sort of uh, final point so I mean like all von Trier's films it's polarizing he is a provocateur he, he courts controversy as evidenced by him sort of self-sabotaging during the Cannes Film Festival when this film was was showing with uh, his daft comments about being a Nazi and, and liking you know Hitler and stuff like that, then he was actually banned from the festival. Uh, he later said that it was the only press conference he'd ever done when he was sober. But so I mean, you know, great artists are, are, are of course deeply flawed, complex people, and I I, I think yes. Lars von Trier is one of the finest filmmakers working today, and I think Melancholia is probably his masterpiece. I wouldn't be surprised if Lars von Trier is making a film of himself in amongst all this, and that was all part of it. Um, but yeah, that it's a, it's a well, he's just yeah, he's an incredibly deep filmmaker, um, and it, it's 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 it is a, a, quite a wondrous film. Um, the way it, the way it looks, as as you've said, Mike, you basically said everything. But it, it is just it's quite staggering. It's quite an experience. I've not seen anything quite like it. Um, and yeah, it does. It really attempts to get into some issues that not many films have ever, even ever attempted um, to put down and, and does it in a really interesting way. And uh, yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty staggering achievement. I think. I think it's a really fascinating film as well, because like you've mentioned, there's that threat of the end of the world hanging over. Then there's also, it deals with these kind of like really minute little moments that you almost end up dreading like the speech that the mother's going to make at the wedding as much as you're dreading the end of the world, which I think is such a big thing to achieve that like this, he sets up this idea of this huge, literally world ending event happening, but still manages to get the details in the interactions and the characters so well done that you're more concerned about like what they're up to at the wedding and what's happening in between these two characters relationships. And you are about the end of the world. And also I remember seeing this in the cinema and again, no intense spoilers, but the ending is probably one of the best endings of any film I've seen in the cinema. I, it was one of those, you sit there for about five minutes after the credits have finished, just like, my God, like I, it was such, (laughs) such an experience seeing that like, oof. Great stuff. Right, okay, moving straight on to our second film choices of, of this episode. Bill, what are you going for? Are, are we out of 2011? Uh, yes, we are. Welcome to 2013, gentlemen. Here we go. Let's skip a year. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sticking with the um, the depression um, angle that um, Mike's brought in there. <laughs> um, and I've gone with um, Inside Llewellyn Davis, um, which is from the Coen Brothers, stars Oscar Isaac. And this is a... Well, Sam, you said it actually, and as you've said it, I've actually thought this is, I think, for me, the Coens at the peak of their powers. I know they're very absolutely again, like Lars von Trier. I think the Coens are very polarizing filmmakers. People love them or hate them. I've, I've shared Coen Brothers films with a lot of people who love films, and they just do not get it or like it. And yeah, and it's it's I, I love that about some filmmakers. I love that about film. And um, you know, you can you can have two people that utterly love film and everything about it and they'll love some of the same films and you'll think, oh yeah, we're mates and everything. But then they'll hate the Coens and someone else will love them. And it's it's just weird. It's very strange that um and then they're mates no longer. And then they're mates no longer. <laughs> That's it. And you can cut them people out of your life. Um but yeah I think this is the Coens operate in the peak of their powers because I think it's one of their most personal and heartfelt films that they've ever made. 
so I think basically this film is about how each of them would react if one of them died. Um, because, and they, they, well, they work together in tandem. Um, the, the, I don't know how it works, but it does. And they seem so close. And this film is about a, a singer songwriter whose, whose partner who formed the other end of the duo has, has passed away, has, has killed himself. And this has left, um, the title character Lewandowski directionless. And he's become a withdrawn, antisocial, awful person. Um, and, and he he suspects or is worried that he never had the talent. He doesn't have the talent. It was the other side of the duo that had it. And yeah, I, do, I just can't help but draw those parallels. And I do think it's I think it's a fascinating ode to the the random unfairness of talent and the inability of some artists to compromise. Um, there's so many chances for for them to have a happier time and sell out slightly and um, accept some compromises for his work, but he absolutely won't do it. And also he just keeps getting knocked back when the sad point is that maybe he's just not that good at what he does, but it's all he wants to do. You know, it's a, you're just watching a life being slowly wasted. Um, you're seeing depression, you're seeing regret, and you're seeing him choose the wrong paths over and over again. Whilst also wrapped up with this hilarious um, movie-long chase of him versus a cat, which, um, which is what I should say as well. <laughs> this is a, it's a pitch-pitch black comedy but it is a comedy um still there's some really really funny moments mm-hmm. there's some hilarious characters um it's got a typically cohen's idiosyncratic sense of humor um that they, they do they do comedy in a in a really unique way which i i really like and i, I think i get i don't know i find it funny um i can't tell you why it's funny um and and yeah a wonderful cast full of full of some stalwarts but also some some rising 2010 stars adam drivers in there um kerry mulligan again and of course, it is Oscar Isaac, and this is the film that I think put him on the map. And and yeah, I think it's very funny. It's very bittersweet, and it's it's got this this aching that pervades it, which which I I just found really affecting. Um, it, it's also got this wonderful sense of place. Um, it's it's quite beautifully shot, and it really installs you into the sort of meandering '60s folk scene, um, and, and and makes that makes that really come alive. And that was a time and period and. Well, let's be honest. Um, genre of music I had no interest in, um, but came out of it with a with a real real appreciation of really catchy tunes too, um, and a great soundtrack. But other end of Drive, a really um, fitting soundtrack. So the soundtrack is the film is quite mezzed scene. Um, it's uh, it's very it's it's very you know it's, it's diegetic sound. It's often they're, they're playing it in there. So it isn't like kind of music that you wouldn't expect but it but it but it fits and it really kind of um illustrates the world too so yeah i i think i i had to choose it because i think it's cohen's are some of my favorite directors and this was their strongest output um so yeah inside lord davis fantastic i have not seen this film and i am one of those people who you said at the top uh, has a sort of hit and miss relationship with them i've seen the staples of their output but i've not by any means seen all of them and i kind of i just yeah I don't get along with it. I don't see what other people get out of it, but I, I do want to watch this. I, I, I don't know if you'll like it. I don't know if you'll like it if you don't like the Coens. It's so Coens as well. I'm not, I mean, you know, I've seen sort of Fargo. I've seen The Big Lebowski. I, I kind of, mm, yeah, it's good, but I just, they're held up in such high regard. And I just, for me, I wish I kind of could see what other people see in it. But It's really funny because, like, I think, Bill, you're completely bang on that, like, I've talk to countless people who don't get on board with Coen Brothers movies at all and just don't kind of get what the hype is. And I love the Coen Brothers and I think they're 
movies and probably very similar to you. I'm sitting there going like, I think I get this and I'm enjoying this. Maybe I don't get it, but who cares? I'm having a really good time. And it's such a weird experience because like in probably the same way that Michael, you don't like can't really get your head around why people like it so much. I couldn't really tell you why I like it so much. It's such a weird experience of like, I just have a great time with their movies and their kind of ethos and their ideas and all that sort of stuff. And I think you're right that Inside Lewin Davis is as much as I love Fargo and The Big Lebowski. I just think Inside Lewin Davis is, again, a perfect film where, again, they're just sort of like, here's the story we're going to tell, and every element of it is just perfect. It's also definitely, definitely my favourite ever Justin Timberlake performance by a country mile. Like, he's really... I mean, it's it's a risky move, casting the big JT from NSYNC, but he really... And also Adam Driver's maybe one of his funniest performances in Inside Lewin Davis. He's just yeah, he's very yeah. It's, it's another one that I I think I've only seen the once possibly in the cinema, but it still really sticks with me. And maybe that's down to the music. Maybe it's down to the kind of the vibes of it, and just that, that it's got such great visuals to it. But whatever it is, there's something I think really special about Inside Lewin Davis. That's just it's a cracking cracking bit of cinema. Right, okay. Sam, you're up next. What, tell us what your, your second film choice is. What year are we going to now? So let's blast forward in the time machine another year to 2014. So again, I've dug out an, my diary entry from when I watched this film. So the next film I'm going to talk about is Richard Linklater's 12 years in the making magnum opus, if you will, Boyhood. So I watched this film, if you're interested, on the 11th of July, 2014. And this is what I wrote about it. It's such a unique and beautiful film. And even though it was nearly three hours long, I could have stayed in that cinema for ages and kept watching Mason grow and grow. What a film. But then I also added, not as good as his Before trilogy. So obviously I enjoyed it, but I didn't enjoy it as much as the Before trilogy. So for those of you that don't know, Boyhood is, it's just one of the great kind of like, achievements i think in cinema so basically it's it's a really simple story about a character called mason and his you guessed it boyhood as he grows from being a six-year-old to an 18-year-old and it plays out over the entire span of those years so it was shot every year between 2002 and 2013 and richard linklater would go and film lr coltrane as he grew up and as he developed and just would let this kind of story develop and happen as it went along, which is one of those things like I think when I first heard about Boyhood as a film, it was one of those things that I just, A, couldn't get my head around like what a big risk it is to dedicate that much time and that much energy to a film project that at the start of it, you must have had no real idea what it would look like or like how it would pan out or if it'd be any good or if L.R. Coltrane would want to do it in like five years time I also couldn't get my head around why no one had ever thought of it before because like when you watch it I think that's one of the things that really works well with it is that it's such a simple idea it's such a simple concept it's a coming of age story where you literally see the character come of age and you see them in all these beautiful kind of inconsequential moments that I think we all have experienced in our lives and we all have these vague hazy memories of the film, like at the start, in the first hour, you see a lot of, there's a lot of conflicts between Mason's mother, played by the fantastic Patricia Arquette, and her new, um, well, Mason's new stepdad. And there's a lot of conflict there, but that's kind of the most intense moment of conflict in the film. But there is these beautiful moments where it's them 
having a nice time with their dad, played by Richard Linklater, mainstay Ethan Hawke. Or he's just having a conversation with someone or playing on his Game Boy or just walking down the street. It's all these beautiful moments that are quite dull and quite routine, but I think as a result make it so much more relatable and so much more real. Because I think there aren't these big moments of huge, intense drama. It's just the film is allowed to kind of develop as it goes along. And that's obviously massively helped by the fact that you are seeing this this child grow up. You're seeing them develop and you're seeing them age. And I think that's such a great, it's almost like a, I, I imagine there's a lot of filmmakers that are like, that's such a good idea. That's such a good trick almost that like, of course you're going to care about this character because you're seeing them develop through such a crucial stage in their life. Like I mentioned, the idea of some of the kind of more mediocre happenings that occur to Mason, I think is what makes this film so compelling for me, is that it's just so allowed to happen on its own steam. It's not kind of forced through by any kind of huge life-changing events. A lot of the film as well is kind of marked by these like cultural signifiers. So rather than the soundtrack as... Bill's mentioned with Drive and Inside Lewin Davis, without the soundtracks aren't curated by the director almost. They're curated by, here's what was really popular in 2004. Or like, here's a cultural touchstone from 2005 that might date this film massively. But if it does date the film, that's kind of the point because you are experiencing this, admittedly, not in real time, but it feels like you're experiencing it in real time. And it's one of those films that I'm really interested to kind of watch again because I think... Again, my memory of this film is so strong. And I think the sense of journey that I had throughout the film is so like still so vivid in my mind that I'm interested to kind of see what I'd think of it watching it again. There probably are films that were released last decade that I perhaps would enjoy more than this, but I think you can't really let the decade go by without pointing out Boyhood as like a real singular achievement of a film with great performances. It looks great. It's Richard Linklater. What more do you want, really? Sure, it's not as good as his before trilogy, but what are you going to do? He's only one man. Well, you say he's only one man, but I think it's an incredible... I, I, it boggles my mind how they did it. It boggles my mind how they did it. And and the fact mm. they pulled it off. And I was interested to watch it just for a, just a pure, like, is it going to hang together? And, you know, I, I was expecting that as, as, like, that'd be a top achievement if it was, like, he's actually made to yeah. got a narrative here. And so I went in with really low expectations. I was just expecting it to just be, like, a, a sort of just, like, a curious thing to watch. Like, oh, here's him going through his teenage But then I didn't expect it to affect me the way it did. And I think it's for all those reasons you said. I think it's the, it's the quiet moments. Um, and the family just feels so natural and... God, I think you can only get it because they filmed it for however bloody long they did. But what, what, it, it, making a film the way no one had made a film ever before. So incredible. Yeah, completely agree. I absolutely love Boyhood. And uh, I think it is, I think it's the only film that I've been to the cinema twice to see when it was out um, because I enjoyed it so much. I think I went to see it then like two weeks later with someone and said, you've got to come and see this because it was just, I loved, I absolutely loved it. Like you, Sam, I could have spent you know, another three hours in there with the, with, with the characters. And it's just so, I mean, it, it, all of his stuff is so good, Linklater's stuff, but it's just the way he manages to get that naturalistic, like you've said, the natural moments, the small moments, and you almost like bring the, the characters sort or of actors are bringing stuff to it. So uh, one of the little moments that I really like is when um, Ethan Hawke's character presents Mason with like an album, and it's like a curated, it's the black album, he calls it, it's like the Beatles. He's reassembled the Beatles from all the four, 
individual members solo work and he's like i've put the band back together and apparently that's i looked into it uh just out of interest a while ago and like that's something even hawk had done himself for his own child and you know and had brought that to it so you get that sense that they're all kind of bringing stuff to it from their own lives and it was very much a sort of yeah a shared venture that they were all feeding into absolutely love it and I think that's what, again, I know I've harped on about this enough now, but I think it is those moments that feel very real and those moments that feel very authentic. Like the scene where he like has a couple of beers with his mates when he's kind of underage. You do get the feeling that you're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure he probably did have a few. The actor had a few beers with his mates, was talking to Richard Linklater and was like, oh, yeah, I can do a scene where I have a few beers with my mates. It's just those really kind of those life moments that we all experience and we can all relate to. And I think that's what makes it so good is that there is that thing like Ethan Hawke saying like, here's this real thing that I did. And obviously let's put this in this film that's very real and very authentic. And just, it feels like watching someone else's home movies for a film to have such a big gimmick to it. And I don't, I, I use gimmick in the nicest possible way for a film to have such a huge gimmick to it and to, for it to have be this beautiful, beautiful film is absolute testament to like a great filmmaker, a great team, and just a really a, a genuinely top achievement. Great stuff. Okay, right. Well, my uh, the final film for this episode. Then uh, I'm going to reverse us back a year, so back to 2013. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, Under the Skin, uh, the neo-realist sci-fi film from Jonathan Glazer. Very accomplished director. Very big pedigree in like music videos and adverts. So he is the director behind possibly the greatest advert ever made, the Guinness Surfer, which of course is a piece of art. He's only he's only made three films. So he made Sexy Beast, Birth, and then this. Uh, and he has not made anything since, which is uh, a bit of a sh- quite a shame, really. He's done some really cool short films. Just, I don't know if you've seen I it. See, okay. some really, they're, they're literally no. like five minutes, but they're very, very good. Good. All right. Okay. That's good to know. So don't worry. <laughs> I would still like him to make another, you know, another big feature length film though. God, don't rush him, Michael. <laughs> so this film, so it's loosely based on the novel by uh, Michael Faber. It stars Scarlett Johansson as this kind of alien in human form who drives around Scotland in a van, seemingly with no other purpose other than to entice random men and then sort of devour them in a strange hallucinogenic way that involves them sort of stripping naked and gradually sinking into a, a black void. Uh, I remember seeing this uh, on a Monday night, which was a Monday night when I used to, when I lived in Brixton, I used to go to the Ritzy Cinema on a Monday night uh, and being blown away by it, how unsettling it was uh, and how weird and unusual it was as a, as a film. You know, the way it presents this kind of alien observation on human society so as to make everything seem really alien and so strange, just the kind of mundanity of it all. Uh, I thought that was really something it did really very well highlighted really by just the incongruity of Scarlett Johansson is this A-lister just walking around Glasgow shops, which is jarring in and of itself. You know, it's a brave role for her. Um, yeah, just that weirdness of like her just walking down, going into like boots in Glasgow and just, you know, driving through these Glasgow streets. So the, the techniques that we use, so it, it has this kind of really realist style, given that it's obviously such a strange premise. It's very realist. So it used a lot of hidden cameras and people who didn't know, either didn't know they were being filmed or kind of or non-actors, coupled with hyper-stylized, really trippy sequences where the men are, are devoured. There's been lots of comments uh, at the time and, and you know, theories about what, what it represents, whether it's a kind of comment on gender politics or feminism or, or race relations or this kind of idea of like representing 
an immigrant in a strange new place. But there's definitely something in there about the way in which kind of the risk of random encounters is inverted. So the men are all ultimately quite pathetic, vulnerable creatures who are easily led as as prey by this apparently on the surface vulnerable woman who happens to be you know incredibly powerful uh, and leads them to their downfall. There's loads of great scenes, little incidental moments as well, much like much like Boyhood, but obviously very different. So there's one very good scene where she's in the sitting in this cake shop and she's trying to eat a delicious looking piece of cake and and can't eat it. You know, it's just those things that really hide, like ingrain the sense of an alien observing and being a part of an alien of a human world. And also, you know, there's a scene where she's sort of examining her own body in the mirror. She, you know, she's aware that it's capable of exerting a form of power over men, you know, in terms of attraction, but is obviously confused about why, what it is that, that is doing that. And there's also there's this mysterious motorcyclist who's kind of constantly in pursuit of her, you know, it's very ambiguous as to what his motives are. Is he her enabler or captor or whatever? The musical score, we've talked a lot about the great sort of soundtracks scores uh, to the films in this this episode. The musical score by Mika Levy is really wonderful. One of the great original scores, I think, of the 2010s. These jarring dissonant strings and this drip, drip sort of electronic beat is just perfect. Surprisingly enough, when I was looking back into back over the film as research, it didn't perform well at the box office, which is quite a surprise and a shame because it deserves to do well. But it is for all that one of the boldest and most inventive and profoundly odd films of the decade for me i think it's quite interesting it's like this um the early period of the 2010s um, i was working at an independent cinema in sheffield so all the films we've talked about were shown and specifically you mentioned in the box office for under the skin it was really interesting seeing people come out of under the skin and they would literally would fall into one of two camps with no split in between where they'd either be like, I absolutely loved that. Or they would absolutely be like, what a boring piece of crap. I hated it. Like it was literally like straight down the middle. There was nobody that was like, no, it was fine. They were either completely for it or completely against it. And I think that speaks to the film's power. Cause like you said, that that whole idea of it does so well, that idea of distorting things and like, there's scenes of like her in the Scarlett Johansson's character in a club. And, you know, we've all been in clubs before, but the way it's shot and the way it's soundtracked and the way that she acts, it feels like a completely different environment. And like her going around boots again, you're like, I've been in the boots, but I feel like I don't feel comfortable right now. And I think it's that the whole experience, the film is just an experience. It's, it's really great that it has that kind of diverse reaction from people. He's he's such a I, I think he's an incredible director and he's such a visual director. Like I love I love Sexy Beast and the things I remember most about it are certain images, the boulder, the weird devil creature, and the final shot. Um and and I think this film is just full of those moments and that's why it's it's more of an experience than a film sort of thing, isn't it? And and I, it's just full of those those visuals that yeah, they stick with you. Um I also think as well, I know Mike, you said it, it didn't um it didn't do well in the cinema, but I think it has had an effect. I've noticed there's been a fair bit of not copycat, but sort of homages and similar techniques used. I think, you know, the black void you're talking about where she takes them down to stranger things has become this huge yeah. part of cultural phenomenon. And they've basically nicked that. They basically nicked it wholesale. Um, so much so that I was talking to people and doing that horrible film nerd thing where they were like, Oh, you know, it's so cool. That black void I was like, yes, well, of course it was done many years earlier. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I think, I think that's a, that's a, that's an effect in that, you know, you've got this this incredibly 
weird, bizarre film that is absolutely not suitable for children. Um, and it's become, uh, it's, it's, it's ended up with uh, being referenced and being copied by Stranger Things, which has become this cultural phenomenon that's watched by everyone. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that, that speaks to its power. But yeah, I, what an experience. And yeah, I think even if you watch it and you hate it, you'll always remember it. Yeah, it won't let you forget it. Absolutely. Also, I think like it's another one of those films that like you almost forget that Scarlett Johansson is international movie star Scarlett Johansson. So good is her performance that you're sitting there totally invested in this character and totally invested in the character's story. And you don't think, oh, that's Black Widow from the Marvel movies. Oh, that's lost. You know, you completely forget that it's A-list movie star Scarlett Johansson. Excellent. Right. Well, that is that is the end of part one of our favourite films of 2010 June special monthly special. Uh, so we've made it all the way up, nearly halfway. 2014. Yeah, we got we got a bit stuck in 2011 <laughs> for a little while, but we sped up. We sped Did up. a couple of loops in 2011 for a while, but we're out now. <laughs> It was a strong year. It was a strong year. Um, if we have missed any of your your favourite films uh, of of the decade, well, there's chance are we might cover them off in the second second episode. Uh, but do let us know anyway. What what were your favourite films of, of the 2010s? Which films should we be talking about? We will be back next week uh, with part two. Uh, please do continue to follow the podcast. Uh, follow us on social media. Reviews are very very welcome. And uh, yeah, thank you very much indeed for listening. Bill, Sam, I'll speak to you next week. I will see you both next decade. Wink. Yes, I'll see you in exactly one week. <laughs>